a decade in review. Here are my most important moments and lessons from the last 10 years. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because most people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. Hat tip to Bill Gates for that one. This week, I'm going to attempt to step back through the last 10 years in life and business and see if I can pull out some of the most pivotal moments, lessons, and takeaways so that you might not have to repeat some of my same mistakes. Now, let me set the stage for you as the new year turned from 2009 to 2010. At that time, I was already self-employed full-time. I had been for about a year and a half at that point, but I still only had one stream of income. And as it would turn out, that income stream would be pretty fragile. But 2009 itself was an excellent year. I was 26, 27 years old, and I thought I had it made. I thought I had figured it out. I'd broken out. I'd beaten the system. I made probably three times that year what I did at my old day job. And I only had these expectations that things would keep growing. But there were some storm clouds on the horizon, and that did not happen. On the home front, we were $150,000 underwater in our house, which we had bought in 2007. This was a major source of stress for my wife and I. We just felt sick to our stomachs, like we just made this horrible mistake, and it really weighed on us just about every single day. Also in 2009, I'd started a personal blog. It was at nickloper.com. And what I found in doing that was that I really enjoyed writing. This is something, even as a kid, I enjoyed writing and having the blog as an outlet. Even though nobody was reading this stuff, that was a really important creative outlet for me. And it was putting in the reps of creating content, coming up with stuff to write about, learning WordPress, all super important skills that would serve me over the next 10 years. So as we kicked off the 2010s, this decade of the 2010s, what happened? I had visions of running a million dollar business and I could legitimately see a path to get there. For the sake of reference, the business I was running at the time was a footwear comparison shopping site. It was called at this time, shoesrus.net. It was called shoesniper.com in its later iterations. It was a kind of a catalog aggregator site where we dump in the databases from all of these different footwear retailers, Zappos and Shoes.com and a bunch of other sellers. And we would spit back out where you could find the best price on your next pair of shoes. And the site would earn an affiliate commission on any orders that came through the site. And like I said, 2009, awesome year, record year. So in 2010, the profits were cut about in half. And I think the site was faced with a lot of technical challenges or growing pains. Ended up hiring some freelance developers to try and improve the site and you know maybe make a new version of it that ultimately went nowhere. It was painful. It was thousands of dollars down the drain. One developer that I connected with on Elance, which is now Upwork, convinced me to work with him off-platform to save some money on fees, which I naively and stupidly agreed to, which meant I had no recourse when he flaked and didn't deliver on his promises. So it was just a frustrating year for this business where I, I thought it was going to go up and up and up, and instead, it kind of got a haircut. Also in 2010, I got on a personal level, got married to my longtime girlfriend at that time. We'd been together for 10 years, I think. We had a secret ceremony at the uh, San Francisco City Hall, and that was actually on our 11-year dating anniversary, where it was just us and the photographer there. And now, 
having kids of our own, I can kind of appreciate how like not cool that was for our own parents. But we did have the full family and friends party type of wedding later on. So there's that. That year also ran the San Francisco half marathon, which I finished just under two hours, which was my goal. But it's brutal. Like running is brutal. Despite having long legs, I've never been a great runner. And on top of that, I just don't think it's that efficient a form of exercise. I feel today as good or better after a 15-minute high-intensity resistance-style workout than I used to after a 45-minute run. But the San Francisco Half Marathon is a pretty cool course because at least at that time, I don't know if it still does, it went over the Golden Gate Bridge. And fun fact for you is that bridge has got a wicked crown to it. It's literally uphill both ways. Another thing that took up a lot of time in this 2010 timeframe was just dealing with the house and kind of mortgage-related stuff surrounding it. So we genuinely wanted to stay there and work something out, but it just didn't make sense to, right? When you could move next door for half price, basically. But I couldn't help but thinking, like, like a business owner, right? I couldn't help but think that this is negotiable, right? If I could just get my case in front of the right person, we could work out a deal that would be a win for everybody. I actually found this letter to the Wells Fargo CEO from 2010 in my Gmail archives. And I'm going to read part of it to you because I thought this was a pretty good idea. It says, my fiance and I have been Wells Fargo home mortgage customers since 2007 when we bought our first home together. Thankfully, we've been able to make our payments on time every month without any major hardship. However, due to the dramatic decline in property values in our area, we realized it no longer is in our financial best interest to continue making those payments. Even after putting 10% down and then paying off our 10% second mortgage, talk about throwing good money at bad, we're still underwater, approximately $150,000. That negative equity costs us an extra $850 a month when compared with the current market value. Over the remaining life of the loan, we're looking at an additional unnecessary cost of nearly $300,000 in principal and interest. Unlike the thousands of other borrowers who are simply walking away, we want to give Wells Fargo a chance to help. For the last 12 months, I've been in contact with members of your refinance, loan modification, and loss mitigation departments. I explained how we would love to stay in our home, but that it would be irrational to do so unless we could realign the principal balance with the current market value. Ultimately, the final answer was delivered on January 19th by loss mitigation representative Chris Murray. He said Wells Fargo would rather see us walk away than negotiate a win-win solution. I found this hard to believe, Mr. CEO, because a foreclosure would certainly cost Wells Fargo more than merely modifying the principal balance on our loan. And since a publicly traded company such as your own has a duty to its shareholders to pursue the most profitable path. The way I understand it, a strategic default would allow us to live in the home mortgage-free for several months until the foreclosure was finalized. Plus, in California, Wells Fargo would be unable to come after our personal assets to cover the debt. The property itself is the only collateral. Sure, my credit is going to take a hit, but you have to admit the fear of temporarily losing my strong credit score is a silly reason to waste nearly $1,000 a month for the next 27 years. We have very little to lose. In contrast, Wells Fargo could face months of non-payment and then have to settle for far less than market value after the foreclosure process runs its course. As a business owner, I've come to understand that everything is negotiable if you talk to the right person, since the responsibility to the shareholders and the ultimate profitability of Wells Fargo rests on your shoulders. Mr. Stumpf was the guy's name. I thought I would write to you. Did Mr. Murray speak the truth, or can we still come to an agreement that's beneficial to the both of us? And of course probably doesn't come as a surprise. There was never a reply to this letter, to this email. And by being unwilling to 
negotiate by failing to negotiate, the bank ultimately lost quite a bit more money when we completed our short sale a couple years later. It was just so unbelievably frustrating. It made so much sense to me. Of course, couldn't find anybody willing to listen. On top of that, we had to watch all our friends who were just a couple years kind of behind us in this home buying curve. We had to watch all our friends buy houses for half off and, and still complain about how crazy the market was. Just a very, very stressful time, really weighed on us. And during this time, I continued to blog on nickloper.com. Some of my favorite types of posts from this time frame were analyzing different business models and trying to break down where the money came from. I remember writing about restaurant.com. I remember writing about some of these like penny auction sites. And I remember writing about what are the odds of the perfect March Madness bracket? Because ESPN had some contest going on where they're like, hey, we'll pay you a million dollars for the perfect bracket. I was like, okay, their million dollars is safe because it's nearly impossible. It's like one in, I don't even know. It was like flipping a coin head 64 straight times, basically. Super nerdy stuff. But pre-kids, this is how I spent a lot of evenings. And maybe there's some foreshadowing there when it comes to starting a new business. Do the thing that you do for free. I loved writing about this stuff. If we turn the calendar to 2011, this was really a low point in the shoe business. I was spending 500 bucks a day on advertising and making a little bit of money, but the margins were just awful. And I mean, that was a great way to rack up credit card rewards points. We got lots of free flights during this time. And you can take advantage of credit card rewards, even if you spend far less than that. My free guide at freecreditcardcourse.com will show you how, but also spend a ton of money on web development, trying to bring a new version of this shoe business to life. It's like, what is going on? How to fix it? One new feature that I was really excited about was a name your own price alert system, which I thought was super cool. Like, hey, the best price we found on these shoes today, including all the relevant coupons, is 80 bucks. But if you enter your email and the price you want to pay, we'll ping you when they hit that price. The sad thing was almost no one used this new feature, even though we spent a lot of time and money building it. Everybody just wanted the instant gratification of just purchasing right away. But it was an extra feature that other comparison sites didn't have that I could use as ammunition against Google when they raided my landing pages. Hey, you're just a a lame affiliate site. Like, hey, no, we've got some cool extra stuff going on here. On top of that, there was a bunch of affiliate tax law drama going down around this time where the state legislatures all across the country were trying to figure out a way to get Amazon in particular, but lots of internet retailers to collect and remit sales tax on purchases that they were selling to customers in that state. And Amazon's response and the response of most of these companies were like, yeah, that's okay. We'll just, if you're going to use affiliates to claim nexus here, which is the legal term, it's like, well, we'll just cut off our affiliates in that state. So we don't want to be bothered with this tax burden. So we'll just cut off our affiliates. And that was going to be devastating for me, like as someone who made their living as an affiliate. So I went to Sacramento to lobby the state assembly as a member of the Performance Marketing Association. It, it was like, I got some press out of the deal, including a New York Times feature and a San Francisco Chronicle feature. But it was this huge headache. Like I actually had to go rent an apartment in Nevada, like legitimately set up business up at South Lake Tahoe on the Nevada side just to stay in operation. It was, it was rough. Um, and then a couple months later, they kind of rolled back the law and it was back home after that. During this time, I also made several attempts at branching out from the world of shoes, but most of those kind of flopped. Like I tried to spin off a handbag and luggage site using the same technology. 
I tried to get even nichier and make a sandal-only site. I tried to make an affiliate site around the topic of wine gifts, which I don't know anything about wine, so I really had no business trying to make that site. However, the most successful of the projects from this era is still around, and it actually predates Side Hustle Nation. So this is a directory and review platform for outsourcing companies called Virtual Assistant Assistant. Think Yelp for VA companies all around the world. This was a cool new project because it allowed me to experiment with a bunch of new marketing tactics, including starting my first email list on Aweber, I believe, reaching out to visitors on Twitter, doing some guest posts, recording my first YouTube videos, adding kind of like a custom recommendation engine survey type of tool, and even writing my first book, which came out in 2012, that was an illustration of the power of buy buttons online in a way. Because I I kind of had the idea at this time that people would come to the website, see that I'd written a book on the topic, and assign the site some more authority. Like, oh, he must know what he's talking about. He wrote the book on the subject. What I found instead through emails and stuff with, with readers and the magic of affiliate link tracking was that almost nobody did that. Instead, what they did was they found the book on Amazon and then they came over to check out the site. It was the reverse of what I thought would happen, but it was like, okay, having something for sale on these marketplaces like Amazon, that was a big light bulb moment for me. And this was also an important step in kind of putting the expert enough theory into practice. That is, if you know more about a topic than your average visitor, you're going to be an expert in their eyes. And since I'd already been working with VAs for several years at that point, I figured that counted. So that's the question or a takeaway from from this part of the conversation is, what could you be an expert in? What could you be expert enough in? Did you know that roughly half of Side Hustle Nation hasn't started their side hustle yet? If that's you, I get it. Starting and building a business is tough. It takes more than just an idea. There are tons of moving parts, and it's a bit like trying to assemble your airplane in the middle of takeoff. Thankfully, our sponsor, Taylor Brands, is helping Side Hustle Show listeners make that leap and make it all a lot easier. Their comprehensive platform guides you through every step, making sure you have everything you need all in one place. Think of it like your behind-the-scenes partner for things like LLC formation, licenses and permits, getting an EIN, setting up your business bank account, bookkeeping and invoicing, insurance, logos, trademark protection, and a lot more. Taylor Brands helps you handle it all seamlessly. And to get you started, Side Hustle Show listeners get 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans when you use our link. That's taylorbrands.com slash side hustle. Taylor Brands, like a tailor for your clothes, T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A. Ands.com slash side hustle. Start your business journey today with the help of Taylor Brands. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster, and 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors, and what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. 
And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In 2012, the business rebounded a little bit under the new Shoe Sniper brand. I went to a few conferences, including probably an affiliate summit or, or two. And then we traveled to China on a really cheap tour package. It was something like 1600 bucks for a week, including flights for Bryn and I. And I think the reason it was so cheap is that January in Beijing is freezing. Like, I don't think it got above 20 degrees Fahrenheit the whole time we were there. I was wearing every article of clothing I brought and was still freezing. And a funny story about that trip is that we needed to get tourist visas before we left. So I look up information on this, how to do that. And I see, oh, there's a, there's a Chinese consulate in San Francisco. And you can just go and, and get it done in person. You don't have to put your passports in the mail. So I plan to meet a friend of mine in the city for lunch and swing by and get these visas beforehand. So I roll up and I find what I can only describe as a Chinese DMV. It's like line out the door, wall-to-wall people, and it becomes very quickly apparent, I'm not going to get a visa here today. So we opted for the mail processing option instead. In 2013, 2013 was like a year of new beginnings. So our short sale finally completed. We moved into a new house in, in the same neighborhood, happily renting this time instead. So we're, we're paying less for a nicer place, and we're just, we've got that burden of debt off our shoulders It's also the year that I started Side Hustle Nation and this podcast. So episode one dropped on May 16th of that year, 2013, and it was not an overnight success. I think it was just a, it's a long slog. I had at that time an email list of 11 people, which were entirely friends and family. My one-on-one marketing outreach campaign for the podcast looked like me going through my Gmail contact history and messaging people individually to let them know hey, I just started this thing. Every download helps me. Like, look, you don't even have to listen to it, but every download helps me. And I was trying to climb the ranks in the new and noteworthy charts, which are probably worthless. Like, I don't know if any any non-podcaster is looking at this for show discovery, but it was kind of this long, slow slog. It took 17 months for the show to reach 100,000 total downloads, a year and a half. It took almost three years to reach a million So you can see things kind of accelerated there in that second year and a half. But I saw just enough traction to keep going with it. And I'm so glad that I did. On top of that, I felt, I mean, I really enjoyed doing it. And over time, the show has become a bigger and bigger part of my identity. When it was just started out, it was just a very part-time experiment. And I think I've told this story before, but I had no idea what I was getting into. I had no idea that you had to buy separate media hosting for these MP3 files. And it turned out it was 15 bucks a month. I was like, okay, I can swing that. Had it been 25 or 30, like the show might not exist. I was like, what am I signing myself up for? I just, you don't know what you don't know. And so the moral of the story is to just start. Just make sure you can just see enough traction to kind of keep going with it. And I'm just, I'm so happy that I did. It's been a totally life-changing experiment. In 2013, we also attended Chris Gillibo's World Domination Summit in Portland, which was a ton of fun. It's uh, an incredible community that, that he brings together. And the conference itself was very kind of kumbaya. Like it was a very feel-good conference. 
not a ton of like actionable business takeaways, but still was able to meet some podcast guests there in person and meet several future guests there in person as well. So it was definitely a cool experience. And then our big adventure for this year was a month-long trip to Japan and Southeast Asia, which was an absolute blast. Like we called this our belated honeymoon, and I would do it again in a heartbeat. Our favorite spot was actually Vietnam, and I think I can count this as the first Side Hustle Nation meetup when a listener in Ho Chi Minh City insisted on buying me an iced coffee, and it was just down the street from where we were staying. That was super cool. And it illustrated the truly international reach of putting yourself out there in blogging, podcasting, creating content online. You never know who's tuning in. During this time, I'm also doing all sorts of experiments on Fiverr and some other side hustles. The Fiverr experiments were inspired by Anarcho Fighter on episode five of the show. This was part of the concept that I have for the site early on was that, okay, I'm going to experiment with a bunch of different side hustle ideas and report back on the results. And we did that for the first two, three years, maybe even four years. But it's kind of shifted a little bit lately to kind of curating other stories at this point. But you got to start somewhere. Turning the calendar to 2014, I attended my first New Media Summit conference. This is like formerly known as Blog World. This was in Las Vegas right after New Year's. I met a bunch of people there that I'm still in touch with today, still in mastermind groups with today. One session I remember in particular was Pat Flynn's talk on building raving fans, which became the foundation for his latest book, Superfans. So it's kind of fun to be, be in the room where it happened there. 2014 was also the year that I started the Side Hustle Nation Inner Circle Mastermind. This was my first attempt at monetizing Side Hustle Nation. The idea was inspired by Alex Barker, who I guess had been running these himself for, for quite a while. So at that time, I had an email list of around 700 people, and I think I got six or seven applications to join at 100 bucks a month. And I went on to run these groups pretty regularly for the next couple years. When people were taking action and getting results, they were really rewarding to host. And I only shut it down after our, our son was born, and that extra hour in the evening became a little harder to part with. This was also the year that I started the cold shower challenge as a personal 30-day challenge from Nick Reese. And after I did that, some good things started happening. I don't know. Maybe it's completely placebo, but if it wasn't broken, I didn't want to fix it. So I ended up turning that 30-day challenge into a year and a half straight of cold showers. So if you haven't gone through this experiment, maybe it's worth a shot. Maybe you wait until the spring when the weather starts to warm up a little bit. I started in March in this case, but it might be worth a shot. See if, see if that kicks something loose for you. One of my Fiverr experiments actually landed on the homepage of Fiverr, and that was for a five-minute video website review gig. And I remember waking up one morning to have just my inbox flooded with orders. And it just so happened to be the day that I was supposed to travel to LA for some other conference. And I'm like sitting in the hotel room and pounding out these reviews in between trips to the museum and trips to dinner. And I'm sitting at the coffee shop pounding out more reviews. And it was just like this really exciting, fun time because it was like totally unexpected but these were really, these were really fun and, and rewarding to do, to look at all these different websites and see the common mistakes and problems and how would I optimize them. So that was a ton of fun. I also did some freelance writing and some freelance book editing during this time. And it's just like trying a bunch of different experiments, trying to see, okay, what's going to stick? How can I piece together an income? Because this was also the year that I actually shut down the shoe business. It had been a four-year struggle 
trying to revive that business to its 2009 highs. And the writing was on the wall. Shopping searches on Google had shifted to image search with Google product listing ads, which affiliates like me weren't eligible for. I was a a text link guy playing in an image link world. So that killed my click-through rates. And as more advertisers came into the game, the costs of those text ads kept creeping up as well. And on top of that, more product searches were starting on Amazon, not Google. On the revenue side, several important partners of mine cut their commission rates even for top performers. So I was just getting squeezed on both sides. I didn't really see a way out. I briefly considered trying to sell some of like the pricing data back to the retailers, but I didn't know how to execute on that. But thankfully, the Side Hustle Nation stuff was growing and it was a lot more fun to work on. A bunch of other stuff also went on in 2014 and maybe almost out of necessity because it was kind of this transition year between the two businesses. For one, I created the Work Smarter book, which started out as a blog post idea inspired by John Lee Dumas's Entrepreneur on Fire podcast, where at the end, he'd ask everybody if you have a favorite internet resource like an Evernote that you can share with our audience. And I thought it'd be cool to kind of compile all the answers to that question. The post grew to 6,000 words, 7,000 words. And I was like, maybe this is more than a blog post. And then with John and Kate's blessing, turned it into a book and did 20,000 free downloads during this launch. And I remember a moment midweek, mid-launch during this book project where Chandler Bolt from self-publishing school, and he's been a guest a couple of times on, on the Side Hustle show, he calls me up and he's like, hey, do you have a plan for when your free promotion ends? And I'm like, yeah, I got a plan. I'm going to make it paid. I'm going to charge three bucks or two ninety nine or something. He's like, no, no, no. What you got to do is you got to stair step it up. So you got to cut off the free promo at noon on the last day, and then you move it to 99 cents. And you had this whole process. And I don't know if this is still a thing, but it worked. And it went on to sell lots of paid copies in that first couple months. And it still sells today. Almost five and a half years later, made around a hundred bucks in royalties last month. So I think the moral of the story there is to build assets. This summer of 2014 was also when I started doing episode-specific lead magnets for the Side Hustle Show, recognizing, at least at that time, that my numbers aren't going to justify making a living off of sponsorships. But if I could convert an anonymous podcast listener into an email subscriber, that would be a win. And you've probably heard me pitch these on air before. Like, hey, make sure to download the free PDF highlight reel with all of so-and-so's top tips from the call over at SideHustleNation.com slash so-and-so. And this turned out to be a really important inflection point for the business. I started doing these at episode 64, so a little over a year into the show, and had maybe a 1,000 email subscribers at that point. Once I started this, though, within three months, it was 3,000. Within six months, it was 6,000. And it was really off to the races from there. Also in 2014 was my first podcast movement. And one of the more memorable or impactful sessions there was from Michael O'Neill, host of the Solopreneur Hour. I made some subtle shifts to the show structure after his session on how to host better interviews. And then one of the big milestones, one of the big maybe bucket list items from 2014 was the opportunity to give a TEDx talk here at TEDx Livermore. I spoke on the entrepreneurial generation about how and why millennials, both out of necessity and by choice, are starting more businesses than ever before. And the moral here is don't be afraid to pitch yourself. 
the funny thing is I found out at this event that all the other speakers were somehow already connected to the organizers. I was like the outsider coming in. And I think I was probably the only person who sent in a pitch proactively. And of course, I was an absolute nervous wreck leading up to the talk. But I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have done it. And I remember I'm about 30 seconds or a minute into my talk. And I noticed like my mouth is like bone dry. And I find out from my brother after the fact, this is like a physiological stress response. (laughs) I'm like somehow trying to swallow and get through the rest of the talk. But that was a really cool experience. When we flip the calendar to 2015, 2015 was the first year of really full-time focus on Side Hustle Nation and the Side Hustle Show. And I remember 2015 as a really fun year. And I remember being genuinely happy for the first time in a long time. Even though when I look back at the full year financials, it wasn't a huge success profit-wise. There were enough signs of life that I felt confident it could keep growing. One of the events that I attended that year was another podcast movement in Fort Worth. And a key moment I remember from that conference was just a hallway conversation with Srini Rao, who hosts the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. He was commenting on how many NPR-style shows were in attendance, like these highly produced narrative-style shows. And it was kind of a wake-up call for indie podcasters to step up your audio quality, step up your production quality, because that's what you're competing with for ear time. Hey, entrepreneurs, we know that anyone with a side hustle loves finding new ways to save. So if your business takes you on the road, sign up for a free membership with Hertz Business Rewards. Work trips, client meetings, industry conferences, with Hertz Business Rewards, you'll save at least 20% every time you rent a car. And you'll save on more than just the daily rate. Members earn credits redeemable towards free rental days. It's also free to add an additional driver if any additional coworkers come along. And for those Gen Z entrepreneurs out there, no young renter fees. Plus, sign up for Hertz Business Rewards today and earn three times credits during your first 90 days. So whether you're traveling for a side hustle or a main hustle, join for free at Hertz.com slash business rewards. Applies to base rate, taxes, fees, and options excluded. Additional terms and exclusions apply. Visit Hertz.com slash business rewards to learn more. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. 2015 was also my first FinCon. This was in Charlotte, and I owe so much to this event over the last few years. In fact, I did a whole episode on my biggest lessons from FinCon, how FinCon tripled my business. That's episode 356, if you want to go check it out. What was cool about these events is that they were both 
small enough to really be a part of the community. Like I'd attended a bunch of affiliate marketing conferences before, but never really made friends there. Never really felt like I was part of the community like I do when I go to a FinCon or a podcast movement today. I also started some experiments with Amazon FBA clearance arbitrage during this time, mostly just to prove to myself it was real. Like it just didn't make sense in the era of big data and efficient pricing that there really could be profitable items to resell sitting on some Walmart shelf. But sure enough, over the course of a year or so, I found six or 700 bucks worth of profit on this very part-time side hustle. So that was cool. And I think the takeaway here is that when you hear an idea, test it out in a low risk way. See if you like it, see if it works for you and see if there are ways to grow it. That fall, fall of 2015, Brennan and I visited Istanbul, Florence, and Venice. Istanbul was a really cool experience. Florence is Brynn's like favorite city and Venice. Man, from the moment we walked out of the train station, I just thought Venice was a magical place, like nowhere I'd ever been before. But Brynn says we can't go back until the boys can both swim. And that brings me to the other exciting news from 2015 is that we were expecting a new addition to the family. And in early 2016, our first son, Max, was born. And he proceeded to just barf everywhere. He had some weird digestive thing, maybe an underdeveloped esophageal flap. I don't know what was going on. It was really stressful trying to get him to gain weight, trying to keep the house from getting barfed everywhere on. It was, it was a challenging time for us, but we got through it. And he's actually a pretty well-traveled kid because just in his first year, he went to Seattle several different times to visit the grandparents. He went to Japan when he was three months old. He went to Prague and Italy he had a good time. And apparently he's got a reputation at the preschool now as the kid who's always going on planes because he apparently likes to talk up his travels. Now, you've probably heard or maybe you've heard of the baby effect, which is like a fire to provide for your family and accomplish more than ever before once you have a kid. But how it worked over here was I think it made me much more focused. In 2013, 2014, 2015, I just talked about all these different random experiments and projects like the freelancing stuff and the Amazon FBA stuff and the Fiverr stuff. After Max was born, a lot of those went away and I just had to focus my energy and attention on what was working. And that was mostly the podcast. So I think I was less productive in terms of raw output, but hopefully more effective in return on hours worked. This year also started the tradition of taking every Friday off so that we could hang out. Not a lot of fun in the beginning, if I'm being super honest, but definitely a ton of fun now. Now, if you have kids, did you find that they made you more focused? I'm curious to hear your thought on the baby effect. 2016 also saw the launch of the Buy Buttons book, and the launch was right around the time of FinCon. It was in San Diego that year. So before the conference, I printed out a bunch of stickers with the vanity URL, buybuttonsbook.com, and I was handing those out to people at the conference along with $1 bills so they could get the book for free since it was a 99 cent launch. And that book still drives passive royalties as well, around 200 bucks last month, so more than three years later. So again, I think the question is, what kind of assets can you build? Like It's a very speculative, upfront task that can hopefully pay you for years down the road. And that brings me to 2017, which I don't really remember what happened in 2017. I think it was mostly a year of heads down doing the work. I do remember the most popular side hustle of the year, and that was Merch by Amazon. Definitely go back and check out episode 216 on getting started on merch. This is Amazon's print-on-demand fulfillment platform for t-shirts, like upload a file, they'll handle the printing, shipping, everything. 
really cool and a potentially passive side hustle after you're doing that upfront work and making the designs. Elaine, in that episode, inspired Bryn and I to make some t-shirt designs of our own, which ended up making over $2,000 in 2017. And despite a couple years of neglect, still earn passive royalties. 63 bucks last month. I'll take it. It's not a lot, but every little bit adds up. I think it's an important note too, when it comes to passive income, that if you don't carve out some time to build these speculative passive income assets, they never come. We've had dozens of designs that never sold, but it's still been a fun experiment to learn a new platform and even see a little bit of income from it. The biggest shift in my day-to-day work here in 2017 was implementing a theme day system, which was an idea that I got from Mike Vardy at productivityist.com. And inside those theme days, the big shift was to stop having my calendar be wide open for meetings, but instead, just as a general rule, to only take meetings on Tuesdays. And since 2017, that's been the weekly setup. And it has freed up so much deep work time on the other days of the week without saying, well, I've got another call in 15 minutes, so I can't really get anything done. So it's really hard to imagine going back to any other way. So if you don't have some sort of theme day set up, I would encourage you to consider that. And if you have some rules around how other people can block off time on your calendar for meetings, all the better. Oh, and 2017 was also the year that Chris Gillibo launched the Side Hustle School podcast, which initially had me a little nervous. Those fears were alleviated almost immediately. Like I've never seen a bigger spike in podcast downloads than I did that first month that he launched. So I just need to have more New York Times bestselling authors come into the niche every year and I'll be fine. Little Hustler number two joined us in April of 2018, but unlike his brother, he kept all his food down and he was a much easier baby. 2018 also saw me starting to pay more attention to keyword research and writing content with search discoverability intent rather than just whatever I wanted to write about. It's it's crazy to think about, right? That has contributed to a little bit of traffic growth on the site, but certainly some improved affiliate revenue through the site. And again, as time becomes more limited, you got to become more intentional in how you spend it. The highlight of 2018 for me was a month-long summer vacation with the family. Remember summer vacation as a kid? It was a return to that, and it was awesome. We spent a couple weeks in Washington visiting the family. We spent a couple weeks in Mexico, and this turned out to be a really good reset. When you're working in the business all the time, it can be hard to zoom out, and I think that's what the time off let me accomplish. I came back with a ton of pent-up creative energy and in the next few months knocked out a bunch of projects, including my active campaign review and demo video, my free credit card rewards course, which actually stemmed from audience members asking about all our travels. Like, oh no, we're not paying for all this. It's being heavily subsidized by the banks and taking advantage of their reward programs. And I published the Progress Journal, which was my first foray into the world of, call it low-content publishing, The journal centers on five key habits that when I execute on them consistently, I find I'm a much happier and more effective person. But definitely check out our roundtable episode on low content publishing. That is the print on demand world of journals, notebooks, sketchbooks, stuff like that. That's episode 339, super cool episode. And the progress journal was very much a case of scratching your own itch. It was something I wanted for myself, but could easily turn it around and put it up for sale for other people to benefit from as well. Progressjournal.net is the URL if you want to go check it out. 
And that brings me to 2019, which was a record year for the business. A couple of the big projects that I worked on were uh, rewriting the Side Hustle book as a perma-free book on Kindle. It's at sidehustlenation.com slash book if you want to grab a copy. The idea here was to make sure my stuff showed up in the Amazon search engine, one of the largest in the world, right? When people typed in Side Hustle. And my hope is to introduce the concept and the brand in an easy-to-digest way. The other big project of the year was I took the Teachable Creator Challenge and made a course of my own, first one in several years. It was called Start My Side Hustle. You can find it at startmysidehustle.com. There are a bunch of students working through it right now. And my homework for this year, for 2020, is to figure out kind of the best way to evergreen it, to add it to some of the email onboarding sequences so that people can get access whenever they want. And 2019 wrapped up really similar to 2009. Like it wrapped up the decade really similar to 10 years ago. Like things are going great right now, but hindsight tells me that it probably won't last forever. And that's okay. If I learned anything from the last time around, it's to get while the getting's good, sure, but diversify the income streams. And on that front, I'm in a much less fragile position than I was a decade ago. So that's a good thing. Like I started out with really just one stream of income and now have a couple dozen. Like we talked about, they're not all big. Hey, 63 bucks for merch, yes. But it's a less fragile position. But let me turn the mic over to you. How did the 2010s shape up for you? Was it a similar roller coaster? Was it smooth sailing? Did it start off bad and only get worse? My hope is you're better off today than you were yesterday, than you were the day before. Stacking up those tiny incremental gains is what leads to big changes and big wins over the long haul. And I think you've seen that illustrated in this episode. I'm in a completely different business than I was 10 years ago, and that shift took a while to fully take hold. It's just a matter of showing up, being persistent, and doing the work. Remember, your most important skill is the skill of learning new skills. Your brain is not a fixed organ. So if you're not where you want to be, keep going, right? That's all you can do. Let's make this decade your best one yet. That's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show. Hustle on.